0: Well, we find ourselves in the book of Judges in chapter 6. So if you're not there already, turn to chapter 6 of Judges. Last time we were together, um, I kind of laid the foundation of what the uh, setting was at this time. It's um, after 40 years of peace, after Deborah and Barak had... uh, conquered the enemy Um, there was peace for 40 years and once again we question whether or not the parents did their job in instructing the next generation Um, somewhere along the line um, there was a uh, backsliding they fell back into apostasy Um, again they rejected God um, and returned to Baal worship And uh, we see God's judgment here uh, once again on his people. And he's judging them out of love, but he's also judging their sin uh, as well. So he raises up and strengthens the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Ishmaelites and uh, uses those people to bring uh, judgment upon uh, Israel. And so now we start in uh, verse 7 of uh, chapter 6. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slaves. And I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, and from the hands of all your oppressors, and disposed them before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you live, but you have not hearkened to my voice." I think the first thing that we see here, different than the last judges that we've explored, is that there's a a crying out to God by the people for deliverance. But in this case, there is no instant deliverance. This time we see that God um, has not answered their cry for salvation instantly. God is angry enough to make them wait indeed rather than comfort them immediately he sends them a prophet to charge them for their sins as most of you know a prophet is a type of mediator somebody who goes between two parties Uh, between, in this case, between God and the people. Primarily, though, prophets tend to be speaking on behalf of God to the people. But Moses is a good example, back in Exodus chapters 19 through 35, of a prophet who speaks on behalf of the people to God, and then God answers through Moses to the people. The use of a prophet here is really a sign of God's grace. Since to speak to God face to face is a very terrifying experience, and, and uh, we've been told that it actually could be a deadly one to look upon God's face. So we see here, even in judgment, that the grace of God is existing for his people. So he uses this prophet... It's a means of grace. And every time there is uh, a prophet speaking against sin, there's an opportunity to repent. So again, we see another form of God's grace, passing judgment, and with judgment can come repentance. Uh, There's no official office of prophet uh, in scripture, such as there is an elder or, or deacon. God raises up uh, prophets from time to time to speak his word and to act as a kind of a reconciler between him and the people. Usually, however, this job is left for the Levites who acted as the role of prophet since communicating truth from God to the people was part of the Levitical role that they were to play. Indeed, the Levites uh, were known as messengers for the uh, word of the Lord. Malachi 2.7 says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. So it's possible that this prophet that was raised up was a Levite, And so we have here the Levites doing what they were supposed to do, doing their job. But on the other hand, it's possible that even at this early date, God was raising up prophets because the Levites weren't doing their job. So we can't really be too sure uh, who or what this prophet was that was raised up. My own personal inclination, given the apostasy and the pattern of the book of Judges, I was thinking that the Levites were failing to do their job, and uh, and God has raised up this prophet because of their failure. But we can't be certain of that. So like I said before, every historical judgment includes grace, except the judgment of personal death. And that's because there is always a chance to repent under judgment at least until the last judgment at your death. The fact that God brings judgment and he says so is entirely his grace for his people. This prophet here is uttering what some of the biblical scholars call the uh, covenant lawsuit. Um... The people had broken the covenant, and so they are brought charges in God's court by this prophet. Charged them with their sin. And in this court, God reminds them that He had delivered them from Egypt. And this fact is repeated to show that God is able to protect Israel and thus demonstrates that their present low condition. It's not the fault of the Midianites. It's God withdrawing his protecting hand from them because of their sin. So this is of God um, that is being brought about judgment upon them. I've mentioned before that uh, there is a principle in scripture that the one who delivers uh, is also the one who has the right to rule by virtue of that deliverance and that is uh, laid out in Luke 1 uh, 71 through 75 Uh, Israel had forgotten this principle had forgotten this fact and they continue to forget it even after the victory is won in Judges 8 so God asserts this principle here in Judges 6 10 he had saved them Therefore, he had the right to rule them, and he had told them not to worship Baal and the god of the Amorites, but they had disobeyed them. And this makes it clear again that the basic problem is not the oppression of the men of Midian, but it's the false worship of Baal that is the problem. So starting in verse 11, we see God restoring fellowship with his people. Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak uh, that was at Oprah, uh, which belonged to Joash the uh, Abyssalite, as his son uh, Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of the Midian. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go into your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, with what shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall smite Midian as one man. So right away here we see that God is um, taking the initiative. He's taking the initiative to restore fellowship with his people. Just as uh, God takes the initiative to calling the lost unto himself uh, in salvation, he takes the initiative to call the lost. And God's initiative is one of the major themes that we see through the story of Gideon. Uh, It's the angel of the Lord who comes to the foot of the tree. Once again, we see a symbol of the place where God meets man. We meet Christ at the foot of the cross, also called a tree. And that's where Gideon meets God here, again at the tree. And it's God who initiates the conversation. So we are reminded that this is the angel, this angel is the captain of the uh, Lord's host, the same one that Joshua saw back in chapter 5:14 of Joshua. He's the Christ uh, pre-incarnate Christ, um, and he's come to prepare Gideon for the fight. You find Gideon uh, preparing wheat in a wine press. This is a a small wine press, and only room in there for about one person. And um, Usually they have a a roof over the top of them to protect them from the sun uh, while they're stamping out the grapes and creating wine. But he's down there with uh, a small amount of uh, wheat And he's thrashing that wheat, um, beating it with a flailing rod because you probably couldn't get any other animals down there to break up the heads of the wheat. (laughs) And so he's not going to get a whole lot of wheat out of stamping it out here in that press. (laughs) There are larger presses here. Uh, Here you see two people stamping out and then the juice going into vats. And again, this would be under roof here uh, to protect from the heat. Gideon wasn't, uh, was concerned about the heat, sure, but uh, he was also concerned about the Midianites. And so he was um, attempting to hide his wheat from them. Now, I know the ladies' Bible study has gone through Gideon. If you have any input along the way, feel free to uh, uh, mention anything you wish. And so we find him in the wine press trying to uh, create the, uh, separate the shaft from the the, uh, seed of the wheat in order to grind flour. Normally the threshing floor would be a large circled area and you can see the pile of wheat uh, there and here we have a man riding on a stone boat. Pulled by the ox to crush the heads of the wheat and uh, to separate them from the, uh, the husk or the chaff. And uh, you see that the difference between a one man job it down in the pit and all this wheat here, um, you're not going to get a whole lot of wheat uh, in the wine press. So, Gideon was thrashing it in the wine press out of sight and uh, below ground rather than in the mill area or, or this area. And these threshing floors were usually on a hill, so when they would toss the wheat up in the air to separate the chaff from the, the uh, seed of the wheat, um, the wind would blow the chaff away. Um, but they are also quite visible from a long distance away, which Uh, would invite the Midianites to come over and confiscate what they've got. But threshing is also um, a frequent sign in the Bible of the process of judgment and winnowing. Um, Luke 3.17 has John the Baptist say that Christ will thresh the world, separating wheat from the chaff. I think that's about all there is. Okay. So that's why it would look like uh, after they've done most of the work. And they could turn it off now. I think. <clears throat> so God has been thrashing Israel, if you might say, use this term, in judgment because of the Baal worship. And if Gideon is going to be God's servants then he will also have to thresh Israel as well, bring God's judgment to them. In fact, the first thing God tells Gideon to do is to thresh his father's household. And just a side note in connection with this idea of, of the threshing floor, the temple was built on the threshing uh, floor. Uh, in 2 Samuel 24. Um, so it gives you a sign of how God's kingdom is built. It's separating of the wheat from the chaff. God opens the conversation with a remarkable promise. The promise of his presence. And it, this is the basic promise of the covenant. Emmanuel. God with us. Because God is with him, Gideon will be a valiant warrior. Gideon's response to this uh, visitation uh, is a sign of of his faith. Uh, He judges himself and he confesses that, he, that the uh, disaster that had befallen Israel are really from the Lord, not from the human enemy. At one level, it is uh, patently uh, contradicting the word of the angel. The Lord clearly is not with us, he says. In fact, the Lord is against us. And while this might seem like an expression of rebellion in in Gideon's mouth, I don't think it is because of the context that we see this in. What comes after this? If it was a sense of rebellion, you wouldn't see uh, the things that will follow here. He agrees almost word for word with what God had already said, referring to the deliverance from Egypt and God's giving, not selling them, into the hands of the Midianites. It's a confession of sin. And again, when we look at it in the context of the passage, what comes next kind of confirms that confession. (coughs) Gideon was judging himself, and so he will not be judged, according to 1 Corinthians He's saying I'm sinful, the nation is sinful, we've rebelled against you, we've turned against you, we've lost your protection, and now we have to suffer the judgment of the Midianites. Uh, Corinthians 11:13 says, "For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged." So on that basis, communion with God can be restored. You, you see your need of a savior, you see your need of forgiveness. And that is the first step towards uh, restoring communion with God. So upon his confession of sin, the Lord looked upon him, or in verse 14 it says he turns toward him, indicating a restoration of true fellowship. Then the Lord gives him a second promise. And this time it's also a command. This is the promise of strength. It says here, what is the, uh, the phrase in, the, in verse, uh, says, this is your strength. Well, what is th- your strength that he's talking about? Well, it's the same strength that he gave Deborah in 5.11, the presence and promise of the Lord. That's the strength that Gideon will have. That's the promise that God gives him. I will be with you. It is my strength. And then he says, have I not sent you? So that's the promise, second promise that he gives him. And it's interesting to see Gideon's response to that. It's a response of humility. He says he's the youngest son of Joash, and the family of Joash is the least among Manassas. And Manasseh has always been looked down upon as one of the inferior tribes when you compare it to Ephraim and Judah. So in reality, humanly speaking, we look at Gideon as the most unlikely contender for the job of saving um, Israel. God is going to use him as an unlikely hero. But first, in order to do that, God is going to have to build his faith up, strengthen his faith to be able to use him. So remember back in Judges 3-2, what was God's overall purpose? He was going to teach his people how to make war. And the type of war he's talking about is a holy war that is fought by faith. And so he's here to teach Gideon how to go to war. In order to do that, he's going to have to strengthen his faith. So the emphasis here in this section of of Judges is is, uh, going to war by faith. Gideon and Israel had to learn no matter how weak they were, God could still destroy the enemy. However, they couldn't do it themselves. They must rely on him uh, by faith. And I think there's a big uh, lesson uh, for the churches here in the 21st century. We often look around us and look at our society and culture and say, you know, how can we deal with this? And we can't deal with it. But as a church... Our faith is strengthened through him, and he can use us, like a Gideon, to deal with it. I mean, even in our own congregation here, we're looking at the possibility of an elder. Um, How does that look financially? How are we going to deal with that? We're looking at a building that needs work or purchase another building. How are we going to do that? We can't do it. We have to go to God in faith and in prayer and ask for his guidance and direction just like Gideon. Gideon was no raw youth in his teenagers. He was middle-aged, and he had a teenage son. Um, You see that in Judges 8.20. In a society that honored age and wisdom, however, he was still a relatively young man. And he shows proper humility and awareness of his youth is something very rare in the church and our culture today, humility among the youth. The Lord rewards his humility with yet a third promise, and that promise is in verse 16, the promise of victory. Because God is with him, his victory over Midian will be total. It would be like he was taking on one man. And this conversation, it reminds me of another conversation with a humble person, and that would be uh, Moses. Uh, and uh, just like Moses, who found himself to be humble and meek, uh, Gideon is exhi- exhibiting those same traits. And Moses, back in Exodus 3, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, asked God for a sign, and Gideon is going to also ask God for a sign. So starting in verse 17. So he said to them, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from a ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and put the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented it to them presented them and the angel of god said to him take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth and he did so then the angel of the lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Master Lord, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it the Lord is peace to this day it's still an Ophrah of the Abirazites Ab- Ab- so God graciously consents to Gideon's request for a sign for it was made not in unbelief but in weak faith Lord, it, it's kind of like the uh, the prayer in Mark uh, 9, 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That was the condition that Gideon was uh, under at this point. And it's not a real simple sign that Gideon wants here. Um, we really do not enjoy a meal if one of our arch enemies are. People we don't like is sitting at the same table. Um, We tend to want to eat with family and friends and enjoy and enter into a type of communion when we're eating together. And in the Near East, uh, the meal uh, was, was set up along that same lines. It was a type of bond of communion with other people. And this is the part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we have. We have this communion, this bond uh, at the Lord's Supper uh, in Jesus Christ. Gideon knows that if God has restored fellowship with his people, then he will share a meal with them. And that's what he did. And there's some dispute over how much an ephod of flour is. Uh, Zechariah 5.7 said the ephod, it was a vessel large enough to hold a person. That's a pretty good-sized vessel. But most people today believe an ephod was about the size of a bushel basket. But whatever size, uh, bushel basket or something larger, Gideon made a lot of bread. And considering that bread was hard to come by, and it's awful hard to make bread uh, thrashing in the wine winepress. Uh, that uh, was a very precious gift, a generous gift on Gideon's part that he brought before the Lord. And God will consume all of it in the fire. And so this will be a test of Gideon's faith taking your flour that you have. You've made this for me. I consume it. And you have no more. And the bread was unleavened, the, the bread of the exodus. And he also prepared a kid. Now, this would be a, also a generous gift a, and a great sacrifice on Gideon's part. A whole kid would be very valuable under normal circumstances, but after seven years of Midian oppression, and we read a couple of weeks ago where it says there's no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey, uh, we can imagine how precious this kid now becomes. The kid is a young goat, and just like the sacrificial animals symbolizing humanity in different aspects. The kid is especially connected to youth, and this is fitting because of the age of Gideon. He offers up uh, this young goat. The meal has three parts. There is drink, which was the broth. There was bread, and there was meat. And this corresponds to what is referred to as the peace sacrifice found in the Mosaic Law. So to understand exactly what was happening here, we must have a little bit of understanding of what this peace sacrifice is. In the peace sacrifice is shared among the one who's making the offering, the priest, and the Lord. And this can be found in Leviticus chapter 7, um, mostly it's found in, in the book of Leviticus. The one whose offering uh, eats part of the sacrifice, and then some of the meat is given to the Lord, and then the Lord gives it back to the priest, and uh, the priest uh, eats that. Uh, the fat and certain organs are burned up and turned into smoke as God for food for uh, the Lord, and the unleavened bread is burnt up and. The, as food for the Lord, while leavened bread is eaten by the one who's making the offering and the priest. And then wine is poured out for God to drink, while the participants also drink wine. And some examples uh, of this peace sacrifice can be found in Genesis 18 and 31, and Exodus 18 and 24. And we see that this is, if you remember from Scripture, this is almost an image. It's a modified form of the Passover meal. So this unhewn rock formed a temporary altar. At God's command, Gideon poured out the broth for the Lord to drink. Then the Lord touched the bread and the meat with his rod, which suggested judgment, and it all went up in flames. And God uh, showed, uh, therefore, that he was willing to eat a meal with his people once again. So communion has been restored. And God had told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So Gideon realized fully now just whom he had been speaking with, and he struck with fear that his life might end. But God reassures him, promising him peace. This indicates uh, that what we have here was a uh, variant of the peace sacrifice. Gideon will not die for the consumption of the meat on the altar was his substitute. So when Phineas smote the Midianites' Uh, back in numbers God rewarded him with saying behold I give him my covenant of peace and Gideon here is called out to war once again against Midian and he's given the same promise that Phineas received the promise of peace as a memorial Gideon built a uh, altar and it was visible for many generations It was the uh, altar that was a reminder of God's judgment and of God's peace. And, of course, in the New Covenant, the Lord's Supper is our memorial altar, a reminder of God's judgment and peace through Jesus Christ. So Gideon had used a vast amount of grain, and it is now all gone, consumed by the fire. He had slaughtered a whole precious kid, and in a time when Israel is near starvation, they have been brought very low. In Judges 6:6, this holy exercise surely would seem to be a make matters worse. But not only have the faith of Gideon performed this, believing God would provide. Now God is asking Gideon to kill one of the few bulls left in the land. And so deliverance would have to come very soon. And Gideon would have to put, be put in a position of having to trust the Lord for that salvation. And rather than hurry through the rest of this, I think we'll just stop right there before God goes to war with Baal. Any thoughts, comments, or questions? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you're going through, he's there. Any other thoughts? Yeah. How often we just take it for granted, or we go through the motions, and we really don't enter into that communion that that uh, symbolizes. (laughs) Nazareth. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, we haven't even got to the the squeezing of the the sheep's wool or anything yet here, so we'll pick up on that next week. And uh, so, Brother Tim, would you close us in prayer, please? Thank yeah. you.